For the past 25 years, Bordeaux Index has been relentless in our focus on changing the fine wine market for collectors and investors. Today, we are the largest seller of fine wine and spirits globally. Bordeaux Index. Join us and visit BordeauxIndex.com. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Capri Cafaro. Capri was a member of the Ohio Senate for 10 years. After her time in politics, she turned to journalism, where she became a frequent guest on Fox News, Fox Business, CNN and more. Now she's turned to cooking and has become a culinary podcast host and has just published her debut cookbook, United We Eat, which features recipes from American political leaders, both Democratic and Republican. Capri, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And Capri, we're going to start where we always do at the beginning and ask you, what are your earliest memories (laughs) of food? Well, I think you can judge by my name that I'm Italian. So like many Italians and, and like many people, I grew up cooking with my grandmother on my mother's side, my grandmother Silvestri. That's what the S stands for in my name. My middle name is my mother's maiden name. So certainly, you know, the, the earliest food memories that I have is, you know, cooking with her and not just making, you know, Italian classics. And frankly, Italian-American classics do look and taste different than Italian food in Italy, but it certainly is my comfort food. But, you know, like, like, many, like many Italians and in the melting pot of the United States, we also, you know, grew up making macaroni and cheese and, and many of the American classics as well. And what's funny is that I remember being three, four years old and saying I, I wanted to start a bakery called Grandma's Bakery with my grandma, <laughs> which is just kind of funny. And, you know, later in life found refuge in the kitchen and, you know, really took to baking pies more than anything else. And what were mealtimes like in your family? (laughs) I would say that my mom was not particularly a big cook, but, you know, growing up in the 80s, I think our our mealtime looked very similar to many other families with uh, a lot of the basic American staples of pork chops and, you know, stovetop stuffing, which I don't think is a thing here, although you you actually can get it at Partridge's. Um, it's stuffing in a box. So kind of a lot of, not quite ready meals, but like semi-homemade stuff that was just sort of very American meat and potatoes, even though she is 100% Italian. But every now and again, you know, she she would make something that was, you know, lasagna or things of that nature. But I think that, frankly, and I don't blame her, with her mom being like the best, it's um, a lot of pressure. So I think she just kind of like left the really good stuff to her mom and I don't blame her. And did you eat out at all as a family when you were younger? Sure. You know, that's kind of funny. That's an interesting question because as I reflect back on it, those are not the memories that really come to mind. You know, what comes to mind as a kid is really, you know, being in the kitchen and and frankly doing a lot of crappy kitchen jobs like peeling carrots and snapping green beans and that sort of thing, which is like the absolute worst. But, you know, when I think back on it, I do think I can harken back to those smells of, you know, peppers or garlic or, you know, those sort of things or mashed potatoes. And so honestly, reflecting back on it, I've never really given it a lot of thought. 
but I guess we ate more at home than we did eating out. But it, we certainly did, and, and I, I when we did, you know, it was more the things that you we would never make at home, like Chinese or uh, the good old hibachi uh, and those kind of things that we weren't necessarily going to make at home, but it would enjoy in a restaurant. And, and what about school food, Capri? I, I know in America it can be different to how it is in the UK with people... <laughs> Yep. Having packed lunches here perhaps more frequently than in America. But what was your school food like? So, you know, when I was growing up, I went to a pretty small school. So it was a lot of packed lunches. We didn't have a cafeteria that would serve food. So, you know, as a kid, there was a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I I actually hate peanut butter for this reason. I also hate orange juice for this reason (laughs) because I felt like I got a lot of that. As I got older, it was really, there was a whole protocol to lunch, school lunch in the United States. And maybe this this happens uh, here in the UK as well, but you have a bartering system of trying to get the stuff that other kids have in their lunch by trading. So, you know, for me, it was about string cheese and fruit roll-ups. To be honest, um, I'm in my 40s and it's still about fruit roll-ups and <laughs> string cheese. My, my culinary tastes have not really advanced from being eight years old. But eventually I started to get the stuff that I wanted in my lunch and, you know, and then had things like grapes and, but, you know, I think we also have to remember two things. One, we're talking about the 80s and, you know, a little bit of the 90s. So when you think about school nutrition and food at the time, people weren't thinking about any of that stuff. You know, you're thinking it's, you know, it's TV dinners, it's McDonald's Happy Meals and it's Twinkies and, and these sort of, you know, snack food products that... You know, it's it's certainly not Instagrammable, you know, bento boxes in kids' lunch boxes like it is today. And I also grew up in the American Midwest, the middle of the country. And so it's um, particularly, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, much more sort of small town. And you, you didn't really have access to a lot of the maybe more unique, exotic foods that you might have in a, in a larger city on the East Coast or the West Coast, for example, of the United States. So it was a little bit different. And so I, I, I definitely had a, a much more simple childhood in that sense. And at what point did you start venturing into the kitchen yourself as opposed to just sort of standing at the side of your mother or grandma prepping with them? Oh, goodness. I mean, relatively... Relatively early on, you know, and certainly as a teenager and, you know, as time passed, I started to do trying to replicate and as I, you know, left home and went to college and whatnot, trying to replicate some of the things that my grandmother made in particular and even my mom, you know, because what you notice when you leave home is those creature comforts that bring you back, right? And so for me, whether it was a lot of baking. So there's, you know, a bunch of different Italian cookies, pizzelles, what we call bonbon cookies, which are kind of this almond lemon cookie. So I would make those during, you know, the Christmas time. And then, you know, we have Thanksgiving in the United States, which really is just a turkey holiday. And uh, I'll actually be in the UK for Thanksgiving this year. This won't be the first time I'll be here. And I was actually um, already perusing the M&S holiday magazine, trying to figure out what turkey we're going to get for Thanksgiving while we're in the UK for Thanksgiving. But anyway, point is, is that, you know, we, we do make a very specific stuffing or dressing for Thanksgiving that involves dried cranberries, chestnuts, and those sort of things. 
And so in that sense, those are the kind of things once I was, you know, left home, I was doing holidays on my own, even if it were with university friends and that sort of thing. And I would try to replicate that. So it's been a long, long time now. I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) It's not true. Capri, for listeners who might not be aware of your political career, could you give us a bit of an outline of how you ended up going into politics and also just giving us a bit of a sense of the role that food and drink plays in a political career like yours? Sure, sure. So really, you know, my whole life from being a kid, I I wanted to be in public service. I, I often say I was a public servant, not a politician. That sounds cheesy, but it's really true. I like helping people. I don't like politics. And, you know, I was a nerd who really wanted to, I I focused on the policy side of the the political landscape, but I I grew up in a a place, like I was mentioning, the middle of the country, and, you know, sometimes I, I liken it to maybe the Midlands or parts of Wales or even, you know, the North, where there was major industry, steel, coal, these sort of things, and they all shut down right around the time that I was born. And so my community was really felt very left behind. Lots of unemployment, people on the dole. It was just not a, not a good scene. Um, and we still struggle today with, with some of those economic issues. So I guess as a kid, I got this idea in my head that what's the best way to help these people that have been left behind be part of the, the solution, not part of the problem, and figure out a way to make things work in government because you really got this sense, even as a, as a kid, that government really left these people behind. So I think, you know, maybe similar to some of the, view, the feeling that happened in the 80s in Britain kind of was similar to what was happening in my part of the world. So that's how I decided to get into it. And once you were in there, you were a pretty active busy politician you know you weren't someone who sat on the sidelines whilst you were doing it and you did it for a long time Mm -hmm. was there even a place for for food in your life during that period or did it just did any free time go out the window food was a huge part of sort of keeping my balance in life and so I spent a lot of time cooking when I was in office I still do but it was the it was a refuge very much for me the kitchen you know like I said a, a way to keep grounded to stay normal you know, in a world where, you know, you are on the go all the time, where, you know, you do see a lot of of different types of things. And then, you know, in the job, you also, you know, I worked a lot on on matters of food insecurity. I was on the, the Senate Agriculture Committee, so I worked closely with farmers on a variety of issues. You know, so I kind of touched the food world in a number of different ways, both professionally and personally in that time. And because of that, I also would work with my colleagues uh, across the aisle, as we say, and we would have legislative victories. I would actually bake a pie and bring it in as a way for us to come together and build fellowship between our offices. And so this became you know, a bit of a tradition, and so I was known for it. And the other part of this too, that, that I do wanna mention, which is very, very important, to me at least, is the fact that we have a lot of food fairs and festivals in my area. 
And because of that, so you have, you know, your pumpkin festival and your, your strawberry festival and your grape festival and your apple festival. And then of course you have your county and state fairs, which, you know, celebrate and showcase agriculture in your local regions. And as an elected official, I would be going to these things every single weekend. And it really highlighted to me the importance that food has in, in local communities as a tool to bring people together, as a product of, of value and of culture. And so that was also an important part of the bigger picture of how food was integrated into my life as a public servant. And since your career in politics, you were in politics for, I think, 10 years. Um, you've, you've moved into journalism and broadcast, and a lot of your focus is on food and drink. Can you tell listeners about that? And, and perhaps in particular, what you've learned through hosting America the Bountiful, which is a travel series about food. Yeah, sure. So... So we have term limits in, in Ohio. So I, I ended, my term ended about five and a half years ago. And then I was doing, you know, sort of political commentary for, for a while. But I wanted to take those media skills and utilize them for something different and amplify voices from across the country through a more cultural storytelling manner. And really find that food is a very unique way to capture cultural stories. It's, you know, you can tell a story of economy, agriculture, migration, immigration, the environment through that lens of food in a way that almost no other tool can do, in my view. So during the pandemic, I started a podcast called Eat Your Heartland Out, which has actually subsequently become a radio show. It's on satellite radio in the United States or North America, United States and Canada. It's also on a handful of public radio stations as well. And it focuses on the intersection of food and culture in the American Midwest, where I'm from. And it's, it's a region that is mostly known for, at least there's, there's these assumptions that it's all meat and potatoes and very sort of homogeneous and, and you know, there's not a lot of diversity. None of that is actually accurate. And so I was on kind of a mission to paint a bigger picture of the American Midwest through that lens of food to show that it is this diverse, rich culture that offers you know, so much to people at the table. And sort of concurrently, I came out with my first cookbook, United We Eat, that you know, aimed to not only tell America's story through sort of recipes from every state, but more importantly, to show how food could be a unifying force in a divided political climate. And that's why I had uh, recipes from Democrats and Republicans from across the country and had them also share anecdotes about how, how they used food in their public lives to, to bring people together. And then America the Bountiful, you mentioned it. That is kind of like uh, Eat Your Heartland Out, but on a larger scale. So America the Bountiful actually was an idea I came up with first, wanting to kind of do something that was part travel, part history, part food. And, you know, again, kind of motivated by or inspired by my time in office and representing my little corner of the world, 330,000 people in northeastern Ohio in the middle of the United States. And I had all of these different cultures, Italian, Croatian, German, Russian, Lebanese, Greek, and Amish in a huge Amish community. <clears throat> you know, we have wine country, and I mentioned all the different festivals that we have, you know, 
throughout the region. And I thought to myself, if this is what we have in this little corner of the United States, what else is out there that, that we can tell these stories and use food as that way to tell that cultural story of the United States? So I filmed a pilot out in Wisconsin. We finished it the week the world shut down in COVID in March of 2020. So it got shelved for a while and we dusted it back off and we just started filming in August and uh, we are slated to air. So it's gonna be a series for public television, which you may know better as PBS throughout the United States. So probably late summer, early fall next year. And when it came to collating the recipes for the cookbook, it's obviously a very specific number of recipes because it's one for each of the states. Were you involved in choosing which of the recipes represented the state or were you simply inviting the representatives who were, who were submitting to you to choose something that meant something to them? How did you, how did you go about sort of balancing that? Well, it was, a, it was a bit of both. I mean, part of it was, was practicality. Who could I get to? Who did I, who did I know? Who could I approach? Who would be willing to submit a recipe? You know, half of the recipes in the cookbook came from Democrats and Republicans, pretty evenly divided. So I think it was, I think, 13 Republicans and 12 Democrats. The remaining recipes I did myself. I see. So how did you choose those? So I did a lot of research. So what I did was I, I did research on, the, on states that basically did not have a submission. And what I tried to do is rather than do something obvious, so instead of, for example, Chicago deep dish pizza or a Philly cheesesteak from, from Pennsylvania or Chicago deep dish pizza from Illinois, I wanted to look and see, you know, what are maybe specific or unique food brands that might be synonymous with that state? What is a major crop or agricultural sector in that state? You know, what are maybe some historical, you know, or cultural recipes that are specific to those states but maybe they're not particularly you know famous or well known but but might be significant in another way and so that's what I did and so I I had a handful of things so for Illinois I did something called the horseshoe sandwich which actually was it's basically an open-faced ham sandwich that was created in Abraham Lincoln's hometown at a hotel that apparently Abraham Lincoln used to frequent and I updated it. It used to have potatoes on the top, but I did it with sweet potato fries and melted Swiss cheese. So I I kind of did a twist on it. So I did things like that. One of the toughest ones was Nevada because you look up Nevada's like state food or anything like that. It's everything is an all-you-can-eat buffet in Las Vegas, which is not a recipe, right? (laughs) So then I, I learned that through my research that there was a big... Basque immigrant community that settled in Nevada to work in the silver mines. And they make their beef in a very specific way with a specific marinade. And there still apparently are Basque festivals every year. So that's what inspired Nevada. And then I also found out that they do make, they grow onions there. So I did, I did the Basque filet with caramelized onions. So I, I did a lot of work trying to put together a state story through these recipes and that's kind of how I did it. Capriya, I think I'm right in saying you've been spending a bit more time in the UK. What, what have been your experiences of British food? I love the UK. I always have since I did my first internship here in the 90s. 
And, you know, I, I often say I'm like, I'm British culture, mostly because of my, my music tastes in, in many ways. For example, I'm going to go see the Manic Street Preachers in Suede in the United States, and I'm probably, <laughs> you know, those, those are two bands that are very, very popular here and not necessarily as well known. But anyway, going back to the fact that, you know, I grew up in the American Midwest and there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, maybe diverse food. You know, it was basically, like, in some ways, like, you know, there was a lot of, southern and eastern european ethnic food so you could get pierogies and you could get every possible type of italian something or other or you know spanakopita a lot of greek but we didn't have thai food or vietnamese food or indian food and so those things were very exciting to to get in the uk and i still love them today and the other thing that i will say is that the grocery stores here are like far superior to what's in the United States. Everything is fresher, everything tastes better, and that goes for everything from fruit and veg to dairy. So it's always a wonderful luxury for me to do a shop here because, I mean, I'm not harshing my American grocery stores, you know, and do like to, you know, go to farmer's markets and those sort of things at home, which are, you know, second to none. But what you all may take uh, for granted here, I will say doing a shop in, in this country you really do have a lot of quality just on the daily stuff. I mean, your Reading meals are like, again, so far superior to anything we can get in the States. And there's so much more choice. So I always have fun going to the grocery store. I know that sounds stupid, but it's true. Do you have a favorite grocery store to go to? Depends. My flat is literally between a Waitrose and an M&S. Like if I walk, like the Waitrose is slightly, slightly closer than the M&S, but I think they do have, uh, the thing is that like, I always get distracted by like, I go into the M&S and then I, I go in to like, go get like roasted chicken and come out with three jumpers. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. So, <laughs> and this is the thing with M&S. So there's that. And um, so they, they both have their, their strengths. Let's put it that way. And what for you is comfort food? Pasta. <laughs> Pasta of any kind, you know, whether it's macaroni and cheese or, you know, ravioli or just any kind of pasta. You know, that definitely is, is being Italian, but I just, I'm just a carbs girl and I'm, I'm not afraid of it. I mean, I, I did study in France for, for almost a year when I was in, in university. So, you know, I also am somebody that could eat like a whole loaf of warm bread with butter and be totally fine. Is that being my entire like meal for the day? <laughs> Capri, to end on, we normally ask our guests what would be their desert island meal, but instead of asking what would be your final meal as well, which we think is actually quite a morbid question, but right. what, what would it be? You know, Benihana. <laughs> You know, call me cheesy, but I mean, Betty Hanna has everything you possibly could want. And I, and I love zucchini or what you guys call courgettes, but I, you know, bring it on. It, it has all of the things, you know, you, you have your fire volcano. My go-to there is the filet and shrimp combo. You know, I, I don't know what it is, but Betty Hanna would definitely be my desert island meal. And do you have a sweet tooth? Would you have a pudding? My sweet tooth is jellies. So like Sour Patch Kids you know, fruit gums, licorice, like that's, that's where I would go with it. I love to bake. I like to bake because I find it fun and rewarding and I like to share that stuff. I don't have a sweet tooth. I could eat a whole pot of pasta, but I'm not, I'm not somebody that, you know, is going to eat like a whole thing of ice cream, for example. <laughs> well, Capri, thank you very much for joining us. And for anyone listening in the UK who'd like to listen to Capri's podcast, Eat Your Heartland Out, 
You should be able to find it on all good podcast providers.